Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Have you ever viewed a science, history, or geography video on social media? Of course you have. They're everywhere. Then it's likely you've seen something produced by Steve Hulford's company, Underknown. Underknown is a next-generation digital media company operating 40-plus own-and-operated video channels on social media. With 50 million followers and 120 million active monthly viewers, you might be familiar with some of their brands, including What If and How to Survive. Special interest video content is something Steve has always been passionate about. One of his first forays into media was a self-produced documentary called Real Travel, 60 Days in Indonesia. As a storyteller, Steve's career has always been close to sports media, whether it was working for TSN, Sportsnet, or the now-defunct Quokka Sports. As an entrepreneur, he was one of the first to see the opportunities the internet could bring to fantasy sports and brands. Steve Hulford stops by to talk about growing up in Waterloo, Ontario, his time as an elite swimmer, and his professional ventures in the digital media and content space. Underknown is a digital-first media company, and we create award-winning brands like What If and How to Survive, and we create this IP. We publish it on social video channels like Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, and we're also uh, taking it to television. Uh, in, in 2023. My role is uh, the CEO and I'm a co-founder as well. So I have uh, responsibility for all of it. Steve, I want to go back to the beginning because you're not from Canada, but we don't hear an accent. Where are you from? Well, I was born in Portsmouth, England, and uh, but very much think of myself as a Canadian. I grew up here, been here since I was two years old, grew up in Waterloo and uh, spent the last 32 years uh, living in downtown Toronto. So are you a Portsmouth FC fan? Do you support them? I'm a Pompey, a Portsmouth FC fan, absolutely. The reason I throw that out there is one of my hobbies is collecting obscure sports jerseys. And years ago, I picked, I think it was probably their last or next to last year in the Premier League. And it was their 110th anniversary uh, kit. So I picked up the shirt. I was just there in May of this year, and I picked up uh, a few jerseys for my son, uh, who uses that team in uh, a video game. And uh, I'm a long-suffering fan of (laughs) Portsmouth and the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, I think a lot of people can empathize with, uh, with the latter there. So... Do you remember much of your life growing up in England? Like, how old were you when you, uh, when your family emigrated to Canada? You know, I don't at all. I was two when we came, uh, but the, the, my parents and my grandparents, um, they're, they're all from England. So I, I've always, uh, you know, felt uh, a connection to the place. And when I travel there, uh, you know, it, it, it feels familiar. Uh, you know, I, when I take the, when I land at Gatwick and take the Victoria, the, the, the train up to Victoria station. Uh, all those towns along the way are ones you know from my family history. So, you know, it's 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 kind of a second home, if you will. Are we talking about the Gatwick Express, or do you take one of the? Because I found a little hack when I was traveling, and, and I used to live over there as well. Apparently, the Gatwick Express they charge a premium to go direct from Victoria Station to the airport, but there's a regular commuter train that I think makes one or two stops in between, and it's like less than half the price. Well, I I'll take whatever the next train is that's leaving <laughs> if I can get there in time. 
Why did your family decide to move to Canada, especially from the United Kingdom? Because you don't hear that a lot, especially from the last 30, 40 years of people emigrating from, say, the United Kingdom to Canada, let alone North America. Yeah, well, they, uh, if, if I remember the story, this goes back to in the 19, late, late 60s. My, my father and mother are born in England, grew up there. And my mother, uh, her, her family came to Canada when she was about eight years old eight years of age and then she went back to england where she met my father and they moved to canada after getting married in 67 and then came back to england to go to university university was free back then if you're an english citizen so my father went to port portsmouth, portsmouth polytechnic to study uh, university of engineering um and after university they, they were living in a suburb of portsmouth called waterlooville and they were looking to take jobs anywhere in the world. They wanted to keep traveling. And uh, there, it was a, a choice between Kenya or one in Waterloo, Ontario. And uh, my father got the job in Waterloo, Ontario. And they moved to Canada. At the time, my father had a brother living there. And my mother's family was there. So uh, they, they took that. It could, it could have been Kenya, though. So basically, it was uh, a job and family. That, That's uh, right. Right, you guys over. And so, you, what was life like growing up in Waterloo? Well, I, I, you know, I grew up on the edge of the town, the city, uh, really, and you know, it was kind of, you know, went to small schools and right on the edge of like farmers' fields. And I was, I was always a very curious kid, and you know, building forts and bike riding all over the place. Lots of friends. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, I, I got into sports. I was not a very good student. And I seem to remember that, you know, my parents didn't know what to do with me. I, you know, I was went to see child psychologists who um, thought that I, I should be in uh, individual sport rather than a team sport. And I remember at the time I, I was prescribed Ritalin and my mother went to the pharmacy to uh, to get the to get the um, prescription and the pharmacist talked her out of it. Uh, and I ended up getting into swimming uh, hardcore and just loved it. And, uh, it, you know, that became the better part of my you know, high school years. I, I swam competitively for the region of Waterloo Swim Club alongside Victor Davis and Mike West and Cliff Berry and Dean Bowles, all like Olympians. Um, and I, uh, you know, lived there until I went to University of Toronto in 1990. I dabbled in competitive swimming as well. I was more of a lifeguard than anything else. So what was your event? Well, when I was a young lad, I was a 200 butterflyer. And then as I got to University of Toronto, I became a 200 backstroker. But I could swim fly back and mid-distance freestyle. Oh, geez. A 200 butterfly just the thought of that is incredibly agonizing. I mean, you've got to be, you've got to nail that stroke in order to do that for 200 meters. Yeah, it was always, it was never uh, an easy race, and, but it was, it was, it really kind of, uh, you know, I think in many ways, um, I have a lot to thank swimming for. It got, it took me around the world and I met some incredible people. I'm, I still swim now. Um, it's a big part of my life today. You know what I find very strange about swimming? You mentioned that it's a very independent sport, but it's also a team sport. Like, were you also on the relay as well? So on one hand, you could you could go to a swim meet and in one event like the 200 butterfly, you're swimming against your teammates. But then if you're part of the relay after now, you have to you have to swim with them. 
Yeah, it's it's especially in like university swimming, collegiate swimming, like it, it feels very much like a team sport. You know, whether you're on the relay or your team is trying to win. Um, we you know, University of Toronto, we had a lot of great teams back then. We won a couple of national championships. So yeah, it really very much feels like a team as well. And you mentioned Victor Davis as being one of your influences, but why single him out? Well, I, you know, he was uh, in 1984, he won a gold, silver and bronze at the LA Olympics. He was a world record holder. I got to observe him as a young man uh, and I got to swim with him uh, in 1986. And, uh, you know, I was 14 at the time. He would have been 21. And at that time, you know, two years on from winning his gold, silver, bronze. So, you know, for a young guy to sort of see, you know, in the lane next to him, uh, someone who was a world champion and world record holder, Olympic medalist, I, it just kind of uh, made me think that, you know, that re, you know, doing great things was possible for, for me, you know, and uh, if, if I worked hard. Uh, so, you know, in my office where I'm sitting, actually, I have the, his jersey on my wall, the one he wore at the LA Olympics in 84 and a picture of him signed by him. And a picture of me next to him uh, when I was a, a little boy. So, yeah, he, he definitely had a big impact on me. You said you weren't the best student growing up, but did you find that swimming, especially competitive swimming at the level you're at, kind of whipped some discipline into you? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, you were in the pool early morning, and then after school, you're probably back in the pool, maybe even doing some land training. And then on top of that, you were doing that on the weekends, going off to swim meets and everything in between. Like you can't really, you can't drop the ball when you're swimming. You can't be lazy. Exactly. Like I, I always, I had tremendous work ethic. I were, I was a really hard worker, uh, in swimming and school, uh, things either came naturally to me or they didn't. And if I wasn't really interested in them, I didn't put a lot of effort into them. That was more my challenge with school, but yeah, swimming definitely gave me a lot of discipline. And like you didn't entirely rub off on me. Uh, in in my in my studies, and like me, your first part time job was being a lifeguard. Just kind of a natural progression from being a swimmer. That's right. Like you know, when it was uh, summertime, and you know, a lot of the lot of your buddies were off with summer jobs. I was somewhat unemployable because I was because of the I was still swimming twenty hours a week, twenty five hours a week during the summertime. So I, I did lifeguarding to sort of be able to get gigs, you know, here and there uh, to. As, as my first job. When you were going through the whole progression of say bronze medallion and bronze cross, because NLS doesn't have a time swim and you had to do the time swim. Were you just like, this is a joke? Cause you had to have been swimming uh, alongside yeah. people who were just, they were doing everything to make that time. And you were probably just breaststroking it right through. Yeah, that was definitely, uh, I, I could have done that, uh, you know, breaststroke probably as you said. Okay. So what brought you to university of Toronto and why were you studying say urban geography and in, in history? Did swimming bring you to the U to U of T or was it, uh, the program? A combination of things really like, I, you know, at the, in, in my grade 13 year, um, I went on a few recruiting trips to U S universities and I, I, growing up in Waterloo, uh, you know, I was a kid that I love cities. I love big cities. I used to read the Rand McNally Atlas and know my way around cities I'd never been to. And I, I wanted to be in a big city. Um, and the opportunities I had to go to U.S. universities were in small towns. And I had seen a lot of, you know, Canadians go down to U.S. universities and then come back for the summer to their town. 
And I really wanted to leave Waterloo and I wanted to go to a big city. So uh, I also thought I would probably crash out uh, of university if I didn't, if, if I went too far away. And uh, I, I kind of had the, this, this thinking at the time. And uh, I'd met Byron McDonald, uh, who's the swim coach at the University of Toronto. And I met a couple of U of T swimmers uh, at the Canada Games in 1989. And so because I, I knew these guys and I, I, I knew Byron, Byron was recruiting me. I went on a recruiting trip to University of Toronto and I loved it. I loved Toronto. I loved the big city. Uh, and it was like the perfect spot for me. As far as why I studied urban geography and history, it was really, that's what I was interested in. I kind of just took subjects I liked. And as I was kind of getting into um, my fourth year, I realized I wanted to graduate that year. And it was just a matter of if I took these courses, I could graduate with a degree in geography and history. And uh, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to stop swimming and I wanted to graduate. And, and it was time. It was all time to be over. Uh, and that's that was the sort of combination that unlocked that ability to graduate. And when you did graduate, you landed a, a pretty interesting role right out of university. I don't know if it's right out of university, but you were working with, uh, was it TSN? Yeah, that's right. Uh, TSN. I mean, I guess you were in a production booth working on, what was it again? Uh, base, baseball highlight reels? Baseball highlight reels. Yeah. I, I had two jobs at a university. One was I was working uh, in a factory, a Coca-Cola factory, building orders of Coke orders. So you'd go around and uh, with pallets, and it was a great hourly job. And then in the evenings, I was doing baseball highlights. And I had no business doing that because I did not have the production skills. But I'd worked at the at, as a coffee gopher and was exposed to sports television production in 92 at the 92 Olympics in Barcelona. And I managed to get a few gigs here and there and then got an opportunity to really learn, uh, you know, how to do baseball highlights. And then, of course, it was the summer of 94 and there was a baseball strike. So that ended really quickly. <laughs> it's, it's almost not long after it started. Did you, were you already a fan of baseball at that point or no, you were just doing it because that's what the job asked for? I've, I've been a lifelong fan of baseball. I love stats. I love the history of the game and yeah, I, I'm a big baseball fan still to this day. I can kind of relate with you on that because my first media gig was an unpaid internship at the score. Loved it. It was fantastic working in the media library. And it was also around the same time that there was another labor dispute in baseball and it, uh, the big deal about it at that point was it was it was god when was it it was 2005 and it was when the expos were first in the league that was oh, their last chance to play montreal and before they became the washington Nationals. so i can and i gotta tell you i met some brilliant people when it came to the highlight reels who would know exactly this play or that play going back x number of years or if they didn't remember the play they knew that the wall was green and they'd be like all right give me all of the uh Go into Wikipedia and find every stadium that's got a green wall from like Fenway to whatever, and they'd be able to narrow it down. Some of those baseball uh, stat people or just the sports people in general, they're like walking libraries. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and I had that ability. To, I remembered swim times and baseball statistics and things like that. Like I, I would voraciously read that stuff and uh, just seem to remember those stats. Okay, you mentioned that travel's a big part of not just your life, your family's life as well. 
Hence, you guys almost ended up in Kenya. So tell us about wide-eyed productions because you rolled up your sleeves and you got your hands very dirty building this uh, this documentary called Real Travel 60 Days in Indonesia from the ground up. Like this was a passion project. So take us through where that came from. So as, as university came to, so I had that job at uh, Coca-Cola and I was working in another warehouse after the baseball strike and I was saving money with my university roommate, Catherine McKenna. Um, and another friend, Greg Prince and um, Billy Poole. And we took that year off to raise some money to then go and backpack Asia. And we did that for seven months. And I had this idea that I wanted to go and do a documentary on the Komodo dragon. And that led to um, it being more of a travel journey of our trip from Jakarta to Flores across the Nusa Tenggara Islands going to Java, Bali, Lombok, Sambawa, Komodo, Flores. And we would just film all the interactions, the things that happened to us when we traveled. And we would package up as a pilot for a travel series. That was, that was the concept. And that's what we did. We traveled in 1995. And uh, we were in Indonesia for 60 days. And uh, preceding that, Catherine and I traveled... Uh, all over Southeast Asia, actually. And uh, we made the documentary. So you guys were lugging around. They weren't even digital cameras, were they? They would have been cameras with actual film and cassettes that you had with you everywhere you go. Like, basically, you were carrying around. I don't want to call it your life's work, but you're carrying the entire documentary around with you on your backs everywhere you went. Yeah, absolutely. We we had this idea. The idea was that we would, at the time, High 8 was you know, allowed you to have pretty good quality video and you could hold it in your hand. It looked like an almost like an SLR camera and it wasn't a beta cam and it allowed you to travel and get, you know, interact with people without them thinking that you were filming something. Uh, these were small cassettes and yeah, we did. We, we carried around like 60, I think we shot 60 hours of footage in our had it in our backpacks. We had underwater camera housings. We had steady cams. We were trying to do, uh, you know, we were trying to use the best prosumer gear that was out there uh, and, and try to elevate the production, what we were shooting, uh, to make an inexpensive travel documentary series. Did you have any experience in, say, content sales at that point? Because I, I have to imagine the next step is you get home, you cut it into a proper documentary. And then from there, you want to sell it. So what was the next process there? How did you get it off the ground or take it from just all of this raw footage to this sort of refined product that was ready for broadcast media? Well, I, I had no experience in any of this stuff at the time. You know, we, we, we did. We came back to Canada. We shot listed all 60 hours of that stuff. And we set about to edit it and put it together. Um, one of my buddies, Billy, took it to L.A. and they edited that and he voiced it. That was the first version we made. And then we uh, we actually had quite a bit of a splash on movie television, which was a city TV property at the time. You know, filmed our launch party and gave it a bit of a profile. And then we tried to sell it ourselves and ultimately failed to do that. Uh, and it was, I guess, about three or four years later, I was working at Sportsnet. And uh, Greg Prince and I, uh, we re-edited the whole thing, and and I voiced it. And at the time, we were 
It was uh, Dave Purdy, who was the commissioning manager of the Outdoor Life Network. Uh, he picked it up. Um, and we also worked with a, a distribution company in Toronto um, who sold it to the Travel Channel in the U.S. So we managed, it took, you know, that would have been five years later. It ultimately went went on the air. After you finished the documentary and it was sold, there was this period where, and I don't want to paraphrase you, but you were living on welfare. Like you had put all of your savings and everything you had into that documentary. And because it had not panned out immediately, you had to, correct me if I'm wrong, you were on social assistance for a bit before moving into a role with IBM. Right after the documentary, uh, we came back to Canada and, you know, I yeah, essentially ran out of money. Um, I didn't qualify for unemployment insurance because I'd been gone from the country for, you know, seven or eight months. So my only option was to, uh, you know, you know, ask mom and dad for money or uh, go on uh, unemployment uh, welfare. And uh, so I chose welfare. I, I lived with a friend of mine. Um, we lived in an apartment above the brass taps at College in Dovercourt, across from the YMCA, in a cockroach-infested apartment. And it was there I started to, you know, put a resume together and try to get out there and, and, and get a job. And ultimately got quite fortunate to land a gig at IBM. Okay, so what were you doing at IBM? Well, it was January 2nd, 1996, and IBM uh, hired a whole bunch of young people uh, right out of university. Most of them were all business grads, a lot of Laurier business grads, and then me. Uh, And they were looking for people who were like self-starters and had entrepreneurial backgrounds. A lot of them had run college pro painting franchises and things. And they were interested in the fact I'd gone and made this documentary. And they gave us basically uh, printouts of people who bought IBM computers and they sent us back to our houses. And we had to go out to all these computer uh, resellers and tell them all about IBM's um, product lines. And that's what I did. My territory was downtown. I worked with a lot of young folks. We had a great time. It was incredible on the job experience, um, learning and about basically sales and marketing, trying to have them buy IBM instead of other vendors at the time, like Compaq and, and whatnot. And then on top of that, you were also dealing with the companies that were building the so-called clone computers and probably selling them at about a 15 to 20% lower rate than God, I'm going to date myself too. I remember the IBM PS1 because we went with a clone computer and we almost, but we almost bought the PS1 because someone had told my father that, no, you've got to have a name brand computer. Yeah, IBM back then really relied on its name, its brand, and they looked down upon those clones. And I remember one clone that was really, you know, people were buying from was Dell. And mm. we, we were very dismissive of Dell, but ultimately, you know, IBM got out of the computer business and uh, Dell, you know, took the lion's share of the market. It was interesting when I got that job, I did not even put on my resume that I had worked, I'd spent a summer working in a computer distribution warehouse and a friend of mine one of the guys i made the documentary with we our job was to weigh and measure every single box in the warehouse and we had to input that into a computer and i we were like so slow i read the back of every single box and because i could like retain you know vast amounts of knowledge about statistics and things like that 
I kind of knew every single product in Mirasol's warehouse. And when when I was interviewing for the IBM job, not on my resume was this experience I had. I was asked if I knew anything about the computer distribution warehouse business. And I said, yes. I, like I knew every IBM product in that warehouse. So um, it's funny how uh, I, I remember thinking like, it doesn't matter what job you have, something, you're, you're going to retain something from it. And in this case, that, that's what got me the job. Did you throw out OS2 Warp? Remember IBM's uh, crack yes. at trying to take on Windows? I didn't think yeah. that, I played with it once at a store. And I didn't think it was a bad operating system, but it didn't go anywhere. Well, when they sent us home with our laptops, I had this uh, this 486 laptop that had the the butterfly keyboard that kind of came out the side, and it was running uh, OS2 Warp as the operating system and Lotus Notes. Okay, word perfect. We could throw it there. I mean, I remember Corel, yeah. even when Corel, Corel had the naming rights to the Ottawa Senators Arena. Like, we're going, oh, man, we're going back. Very nostalgic. But after that, you moved to Sportsnet. So you came back into the media realm. So what brought you, uh, what brought you back to Sportsnet? What brought me back to Sportsnet was I did not, uh, you know, I, I, I actually was one of the first of that group of people, that those young folks that were hired by IBM. Um, I, I managed to uh, get promoted there by doing the opposite of what they told me to do. They, we were told to go out and really pay a lot of attention to the small accounts. And, and I paid a lot of attention to a couple of big accounts. And they said that they would buy a lot of IBM. And I ended up getting promoted into a bigger group with you know, more senior people to account manage much larger um, computer resellers. And and frankly, I was in over my head. I wasn't really enjoying it. I always said like it was a suit that didn't fit. Um, and I really wanted to be it back in sports media. And I had an opportunity. Um, Scott Moore had, was launching the Sportsnet channel, and a friend of mine was going to be editing over there. And again, it was just fortuitous luck. Um, Scott was someone I met at the 92 Olympics in Barcelona, and he gave me that baseball highlight job. And this was now, I want to say, six years on from the CTV Olympics in Barcelona. And I happened to be at a grocery store in cottage country, uh, like picking up eggs and milk for cottage weekend when I bumped into Scott Moore and Dean Bender. And uh, Scott recognized me and said hello. And we talked a bit. And I said, hey, I hear you're launching Sportsnet. And yeah, yeah. And he said, well, why don't you come on by and say hi, which opened the door for me to, you know, go begging for a job. And uh, I did. And um, he, I went to see him and he said he didn't know where to put me, but he said he had a hockey researcher job. And why don't I go off and put together a research debt pack for their first game, October 9th, 1998. I think it was the Ottawa Senators against someone else. And I literally didn't sleep for like four days. And I basically came in with a 50-page research pack and he gave me the job. That's incredible. You found your way back into sports media by a chance encounter at a grocery store in cottage country. That's right. What's that line Crazy. again? And of all the gin joints in the world, you walk into this one? That's right. But yeah. your sports media career grew from there. This is a company that I'm very familiar with, Quoka Sports. I know they don't exist anymore, but how did uh, how did you find the role at Quoka? And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but this took you to San Francisco. 
I moved from the hockey researcher job to then uh, I, I taught myself how to code HTML and create flash animations. Like I spent a good year, like just really uh, going deep researching, spending a lot of time teaching myself everything I could about web digital web content and how to make it. And uh, at the time I, I was actually, um, I think I was like one of the first employees on the CTV uh, website, the Sportsnet website. And we were creating video highlights for the Intel Web Outfitter service, which was, um, it, we built this video jukebox where you could watch highlight reels. And when you got the in, when you got a PC and it had Intel inside, you'd have a CD-ROM in there that would boot up and it was really designed to show you what the processing power of Intel could do and what high-speed internet could deliver you. Because back then, all the content was designed for dial-up. And so we were putting like, like broadband, like you know, high-resolution video. It wouldn't be high-resolution today, but we were putting that on a CD-ROM. And um, so I was doing that at Sportsnet and I went on a vacation to San Francisco. Um, I'd learned about Quokka Sports, actually. My father was a big fan and he was watching around the world yacht racing and uh, I was following a lot of their mountain climbing expeditions and they had some of the most incredible like websites. Um, and uh, I just love what they were doing. And I, I looked them up when I was on, in San Francisco on holiday and showed up there and went in, went in and it just so turns out that they were looking to hire a broadband producer to package up all the content they were doing for the Intel web outfitter service, which is a crazy coincidence. And uh, I, I got, I, they offered me a job like with a salary that was you know, over double I was making up in Toronto and it was an easy, yes, I'm coming. And I remember when I got back to Toronto from San Francisco, my holiday, my, my parents asked me, what did I think of San Francisco? And I said, well, I'm going to really enjoy living there. <laughs> they, they didn't even know I was interviewing. But I mean, you didn't go down there with the intent to interview. You said it was a vacation and you stopped by and then everything materialized from there. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. It was, it was a holiday and then, and then it turned into, uh, I, I went and saw a couple companies down there actually and got, got a job with this one. I remember their sites because they used to do the web work for championship auto racing teams, MotoGP, and I believe they also had the NBC Olympics. And I got to tell you, now that I look back with the benefit of hindsight, it seems like they were really ahead of their time with the way they laid things out. Like they were very big into just massive images taking over your screen. You see that now with a lot of like WordPress based sites where it's like a giant image headline and then the text well below it. But I felt like they were the first ones doing it. Do you, do you think that was the case? Oh, a hundred percent. In fact, I think if you did, I think if we, if you brought out and, and, and built those products today, people would think it's on the cutting edge and, you know, that, that, that's, uh, you know, 20, 24 years later, the, they did this, they did a lot of stuff in flash. And I remember one of their projects, which was this mountain climbing expedition on Trango tower in Pakistan, it was on the back of the flash four box. Like these people were master designers, uh, product designers. They had incredible visual sense and uh, what they were doing was just incredible. Um, and it would be, I think if you did it today, 
And you're absolutely right. They did NBC Olympics, MotoGP. They did. They ended up doing. Um, they bought Warren Miller's film archive. We did uh, Final Four basketball. Um, it was just an incredible experience. But like many companies, they were not immune to the dot com bubble burst. So what happened when the bottom fell out there? I I went down to San Francisco and I think the Nasdaq was over five thousand. And I remember coming home when it was around twelve hundred. So yeah, Ouch. it was a yeah, it was a massive boom and a massive bust. Ultimately, um, all those jobs disappeared from the entire. It seemed like they disappeared from California entirely. Once the once everything, all the dot com boom went bust, there were very little jobs. Uh, it with you if you had these digital skills, you you could not find work. Um, so I ended up, um, I, I met my future wife down there, um, and Carrie and I, I ended up moving in with her and spent the summer of 2001 looking for work, couldn't find any, um, and I came back to Toronto, and I started, uh, I ended up getting a job with TSN, um, running, uh, they had a new product called TSN Max. And um, I started my job September 10th, 2001, the day oh. before 9-11. And uh, yeah, that brought me back to Toronto. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing within that role. Well, they had, uh, it, like, the, the bust had not happened back in Canada, and there was a lot of uh, momentum. Um, Bell was investing a lot in digital properties, and there was this new product they wanted to create called TSN Max which was they hired a team of writers that were going to follow the six Canadian hockey teams. And it would be a, a subscription service that you'd buy and you'd get real-time alerts, uh, text message alerts over the bell carrier. And uh, I was going to run, uh, run and manage that. When did you decide to go out on your own though and start the fantasy sports network? Cause you're a co-founder in this, like where did this idea come from and what opportunity did you see there? What gap in the market did you think you could fill? Well, interesting that that started actually was I, I ended up getting this VP job um, only three or four months after I, I started at TSN max, you know, I was asked by the VP or the CEO of Bell Globe Media at the time. She, she asked, Liv Gibson asked me, what would I do? And I said, I would shut it down. Um, and I would use the funds to build, to, to put all that money back into TSN.ca's website and build a fantasy sports business around it. And this was some of the, the learnings we had from Quokka Sports is that you know, it, it, at the time, you just—it was not something people would pay for editorial. They wouldn't pay a subscription fee for editorial. So, but they were paying for fantasy sports. So, TSN.ca at that time was kind of—it uh, it had spent the it, it had grown to be the biggest sports website in Canada at the time, and it was an incredible story. Actually, the people that had built it over the years, and it had really uh, had no support from TSN's executives, you know, guys like Rick Brace, um, really, uh, invested nothing in it. And I remember there was a guy there that had to rebuild the entire website in a different programming language, just so he could add double the Ram in the server and get more capacity. And they wouldn't give him the money to do that. They, 
I think the uh, broadcast executives that I grew up with in that era looked at uh, the internet with disdain and they did not invest in it. And maybe they thought it was a threat or didn't take it seriously. Um, so I, I got a chance to actually like put, we, we invested a lot of money in TSN.ca. We put industry standard ad units in it and we started to run fantasy sports pro, uh, and started to make some money with it. And so as it was leading up to um, the the year, I guess, 2020 or 2003, as, it, as we were leading up to 2003, we were building our new budget. And about 60 days before I got axed, I, I was invited to uh, Molson to see, and they basically had done all this research that showed that fantasy sports drinkers were heavy were were heavy beer drinkers and Molson wanted to own fantasy sports in Canada and they wanted to do it with TSN. And then I showed them that TSN and RDS, the French website only had 25% market share in fantasy sports and that they needed to actually do partnerships with all the sports broadcasters, which they already had partnerships with. And, um, I, uh, you know, 60 days later, I found myself out of work. There was a corporate coup and they took back all these digital properties um, you know, this was an uh, initiative of Rick Brace's to bring them back inside the broadcast networks. And I was out of work. And the first thought that crossed my mind was, wow, there's an opportunity to actually run a fan, to, to go back to Molson and say, let's build fantasy sports. And I partnered with a friend of mine who had some technology um, teams. And we went to Peter Smith, Judy Davey at Molson. And they funded um, funded that. We became the first company I think Molson had created since Beaver Lumber. And we launched Fantasy Sports Network. And we started building hockey pools and fantasy games. And then we got into – and we, we also worked Donna Henderson at Nine Dots. It was a great digital agency downtown Toronto. They were our creative partner. And we – this was this three-company, um, you know, we built Fantasy Sports Network together. So were you part owner of that or was it your company was commissioned to build it and they owned everything entirely? We were 34%. Henderson Bass, uh, Nine Dots was 16%, I believe, and Molson was 51%. And we were the managing partner of it. Okay, so how did you exit from that and then move on to PoolExpert.com? Because it seems like, I don't know if I call it a natural progression or competition, but how did that come about? Well, basically what, uh, what had happened, so we were running that for about three years. And along the way, uh, Molson and Coors merged together, and the the momentum of that merger, uh, you know, the, the the people we were working with at Molson had less and less time to spend on what we were doing, and I think their their mission and their their strategies changed um, away from building the Molson Insider database, and you know the company had, you know, was breaking even, but really kind of failed to. Uh, to thrive. You know, we had partnerships with TSN and along the way, um, my partner and I had purchased another company, uh, poolexpert.com. You know, we had an opportunity to sell poolexpert.com to Rogers in 2008. And one of the things that we would have to do is sign a five-year non-compete and stay out of the fantasy sports space. So it meant that we, the managing partner of fantasy sports Network, would have to leave the partnership and at that time Molson and 
nine dots decided uh we like we all decided we, we would we would just shut it down um and we, we would sell pool expert to rogers in 2008 we would shut fantasy sports network down but not before molson sent a cease and assist to fox sports network to stop using our trademark name fsn in the u.s Okay, so when someone presents you a contract like that, says we'll make the acquisition, but you have to stay out of a business that you're obviously very good at and you're very passionate about, does it make you think twice about signing on the dotted line? It, it definitely does. Um, but at the time, um, you know, we were, you know, we had not had an exit before, um, and that was a big deal for us. You know, we had, you know, the previous five years of running these digital startups. Um, we actually were running three digital startups. We had Fantasy Sports Network, we had Pool Expert, and then we incubated and launched a new one called File Mobile. Uh, and it already had maybe a, you know, it was doing quite a bit of revenue by 2008. And we really wanted to focus on that as well, full time, and give that our full attention. So um, we were only too happy to exit, sell Pool Expert, and and. Uh, and, and, and move on to file mobile. So tell us a little bit more about file mobile. Like what, what problem were you trying to solve with that? That problem we were trying to solve. So this would have been the, the hockey strike of 2004, 2005, if I'm not mistaken, that's when we went and we purchased pool expert. And at the same time, I was just fascinated by web 2.0 technologies and flickered come on the scene. And I, I, I just fell in love with that new uh the new internet if you will at that time and i imagined building a video version of Flickr, and that's exactly what we set out to do and we i hired this really crack team of developers in amsterdam and we set about to build file mobile which would be a content management system uh for your personal self you could upload photos and videos from your phones and this is 2005 2006 you could upload pictures and videos from your phones. You could manage your digital life there and share it with friends and post it to blogs and things like that. It could do so many different things. Uh, it was just just fascinated by the technology. Um, we would go out and show it to broadcasters and City TV. Um, I remember it with Maria Hale, um, Dale Fallon, and Richard Caney. Uh, we went and pitched it to those guys, and they they saw an opportunity to take user-generated content from fans that would sit outside the, the music, Much Music building and the concerts that they ran, who'd take pictures and videos, and then they could use it on television and on their websites. And so they were our first client. And that's what sort of started that business. And uh, we from there, just we kept doing video contests like we did – we did the contest for CBC's uh, Hockey Night in Canada. We did uh, so. File Mobile was kind of born out of those early opportunities we found just uh, from the streets of Toronto. But you also had another exit with this company. It was acquired by New Zulu. So who was or what was New Zulu, and what happened to you after that acquisition? Like, did you stay with the company or did you go off to do something else? You know, after we sold Pool Expert in two thousand and eight. You know, we went full time on file mobile and we built that up, sold to media companies around the world um, from 2005 to 2000, February 2015, when we ultimately sold it. And 
by that time, File Mobile was a fully B2B solution. We provided, uh, we, we worked with companies like USA Today, Fox News, um, Swiss Television, ITV in Britain. Uh, we, we worked with all the Australian broadcasters, Canadian broadcasters, um, many, many U.S. broadcasters and newspapers. And we helped them get user-generated content and then put it on broadcast television. The Weather Network was a client uh, and on their websites. And we sold that to New Zulu. And New Zulu was um, a company that was run by an Australian entrepreneur named Alex Hartman. And Alex had this vision to get user-generated content um, that would then go to all the press agencies around the world where they, you, you could buy this user-generated content and it became a marketplace for user-generated content sold through press agencies like the C Canadian press and French press and Associated Press. Their most famous uh, most famously, uh, someone took a video when Michael Schumacher had his accident in the French Alps. He fell and was airlifted off a mountain. And that video uh, was shot by a user, sent to New Zulu, and wound up uh, being sold to a number of different press agencies. Um, and that what he was looking for was a platform that could help him scale his operation globally. It kind of sounds like the user-generated content version of Shutterstock. Yeah, that's a that's a good way of looking at it. Okay, so when the acquisition is made and you stay on board as their chief technology evangelist, is it hard for you to still not get your hands dirty, or do you have to take a couple of steps back and go, okay, I might have started this, or actually I did start this, I built it to this level, but it's not completely my baby anymore. Like, do you find that you had to exercise some level of restraint while you were still on board and helping with that transition? Yeah, I, I think so for sure. You know, there's it, it always a bit of an adjustment there, but. You know, Alex was uh, very clear. He, he wanted me to, you know, be someone who would, you know, meet all their customers and travel to their offices around the world and and basically share my knowledge um, of, of what we built over the last, you know, seven years. And he wanted me to incubate uh, my next company in that one. That was something he wanted me to do. I wanted to ask you, though, about, the whole acquisition process, not everything from start to finish, but for File Mobile, how did it start? Did you just get an email one day or a phone call from someone that had been saying, hey, you know, I'm interested in what you guys are doing. I want to acquire it. Or did you already sort of have a pre-existing relationship with the company or someone at the company who had seen your work and thought, okay, you know what? Let's talk about growing this partnership from just a partnership to an actual acquisition. Like how does the whole conversation or how does that all start? Well, it, it, it was very interesting. Um, you know, they they often say that companies are purchased by companies that they're already doing business with. But in the cases of the two that we'd sold, uh, that wasn't the case. Um, we'd actually tried to sell File Mobile unsuccessfully. And um, Alex Hartman looked up me and my colleague on LinkedIn. And my colleague took a meeting with him. And Alex is one of these guys that he would literally fly from Australia to Toronto and back in like two days just to take a meeting. He had this attitude of you got to just show up. And he literally showed up at our office and was very intrigued by the business. Um, I remember saying, I'd love to show you a demo. And he's like, I've already had one. And it turns out that we were competing to win Channel 9 Sydney broadcast software license. Uh, 
this company wanted to be able to upload large video files for their reporters in the field. And they didn't want them having to go back, upload to America where all the cloud stuff was. They wanted to do it right in Australia. We were able to put our cloud in Australia on the Amazon cloud. So we won that business. And I remember Channel 9 Australia told Alex, like, you know, we're not going with you. We're going to go with this company in Toronto. And by the way, they're three times your price. So he had the attitude of like, I got to meet these guys. And he came to Toronto, showed up at our office. And I think the, the conversation turned, started off with a partnership and then ultimately said, you know, I want to buy you guys. And, you know, he offered, uh, we ended up going through, once we had that interest, we went to a couple others we knew that were interested and we, we managed, he ended up, I think he upped his price three times and ultimately we got a deal done in January of 2015 to sell the company, I think, for $5 million at the time. Okay, so this brings us full circle to where we are now, Underknown. Where did the idea come from? Yeah, so Underknown was born, I guess, in 2016. And I, when, when I started working with Nuzulu, I started to really study what was going on in the digital video space at the time. And I was really inspired by what Nuzulu was doing. And I noticed there was at that time a ton of venture capital money flooding into digital startups. And this idea that you could build a digital media company and earn reoccurring revenue by creating content and putting it on YouTube and putting it on Facebook. And that I, I noticed there was a couple of Canadian websites, like I fucking love science was bigger than National Geographic. And Diply was bigger than BuzzFeed. And I'm like, and I so I started to again do tons and tons of research to reverse engineer their success. And I discovered that they were basically build, building influencer partnerships with you know hundreds of people with massive pages on Facebook that would share their content and they'd make money off their website. And we were very interested in doing the same thing, but for video. And that's that's what I started to do is just started to create videos. I had this idea that uh, we would hire a data scientist and sort of study what the internet was interested in, in, in watching. And we discovered all kinds of themes on Facebook that had reoccurring popular themes. We, we discovered that uh, there was, um, you know, themes like hypotheticals and heroes stories. And, and we also discovered that if you stripped away anything to do with celebrity culture or sports, there were these top humanity brands. Like I was a huge fan as a kid of real, please believe it or not the book of lists, uh, Guinness book of world's records. Um, and, uh, I, I wondered national geographic. I wondered why didn't they make it to digital? And we discovered actually that when you stripped out all the celebrity content, there were four humanity brands in there. National geographic, uh, was in there twice discovery and history. And that, and after a deep dive on their content, they were not making these great stories that uh, I wanted to watch and that I was inspired by, that I was inspired by as a young guy around interesting factual uh, content. So that's what we set about to do. We started to make content, post it on social media, and um, the stuff kept going viral. And um, that was what ultimately um, you know, led to this idea of starting and by January of 2017, I had was, I'd been actually 
you know, quite actively building it. We'd built it up to about 50,000 followers, had had tons of viral videos. And uh, um, we had uh, had all kinds of viral success. And I ended up raising a million bucks from some friends and um, people I knew in the industry. And Undernome was born. Do you see any parallels between what you were doing with 60 Days in Indonesia versus what you're doing right now, or at least the people that you're working with, with that user-generated content? Because as I reflect back on our discussion, I guess you could say the problem you had there was, is that there was this barrier, this barrier because there were very few outlets that could actually take the, take the documentary and air it and get it out to the masses. Whereas now those barriers have been brought down. You don't have to deal with the major broadcasters. There are avenues to get your content out there. So do you, do you kind of look back and go, huh, you know what? I'm kind of solving a problem that could not have been solved 20 years ago, but it was something that I encountered when I was taking my first crack at being a documentary filmmaker. The, everything had changed, you know, and, and now they call it the creator economy. And, you know, everybody like young people today want to be YouTubers. And, um, you know, the idea that you can create content and then have it massively distributed and you don't have to go to a commissioning editor. It's just it's revolutionary. And the fact that you can earn reoccurring revenue is revolutionary. You know, that was always the thing, you know, investors always would ask you, what's your business model? How do you make money? Well, this is a fantastic business model because you put the content up and the platforms pay you like 17 days after the month ends. And you're every month you're earning revenue and your back catalog, your back catalog earns money and you're making new content. Um, it, I was really thought it was interesting and that this would be the sort of new model, a model, the digital first media company. And, uh, you know, I never would have imagined back, you know, when we we're shooting in Indonesia, uh, that this would be possible. Steve, this has been fantastic. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? I'm ready. Your favorite movie. Favorite movie, probably Shawshank Redemption. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Oh, I'd probably say Woody Harrelson or a Matthew McConaughey. My follow-up to that, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? I would say uh, he started on second base. Your favorite book? My favorite book is The Trilogy of the Mutiny on the Bounty. Your favorite song? Maybe Bob Marley's Redemption Song. The best advice you have ever received? I think the best advice I ever received, actually, was from a lot of people who I, I met during my swimming days, that they, they would tell me that, that the sport I was participating would benefit me tremendously in my future. And it was just that if you find something you love and you work your ass off at it, you know, you can make a living doing it. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? I would say don't don't try to skip any steps. You you've got to learn the foundational things first and enjoy that and 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 build from there. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? If I wasn't in media, what would I be doing and why? Um I think I'd I'd probably be in tech. Um I love I'm a builder, so I I love building things. Um and whether it's you know, digital technology or physical products. Uh, I think that's what I'd be doing. 
Steve, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Victor. I really enjoyed chatting. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.